0: Support for Small Joys comes from the Columbus Foundation, celebrating the creativity that inspires and strengthens the Central Ohio community every day. More at
1: columbusfoundation.org.
0: From WOSU Public Media, this is Small Joys. I'm Hanif Abdurraqid. For this episode, my guest is Nick White. Nick is a novelist and short story writer. He is also an assistant professor at Ohio State's creative writing program. Nick's debut novel, How to Survive a Summer, came out in 2017, and a collection of short stories titled Sweet and Low came out the following year. Growing up in Mississippi has informed much of Nick's work, and we began begun our talk by asking him about his hometown and why he's drawn to writing about the South, which is what I love about Nick is how richly he populates his books with his place of origin and how sweetly he talks about his place of origin and just how warm he is in general as a person. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you enjoy it as well. The thing that I most found myself wanting to talk to you about was um, Mississippi. Oh, yes. Uh, Because... um, One, you know, I'm I'm kind of doing some, I'm I'm, I'm writing a bit about Mississippi right now. I'm writing about a musician who's from Mississippi, from Meridian, and I've I've been spending some time kind of in the depths of Mississippi. But I think that you speak so thoughtfully and write so thoughtfully and generously about where you're from. Um, And I think you do it with a very specific and generous lens, particularly because it feels like – there are some regions that get kind of lumped into this monolithic idea of what they are. I think the Midwest is like that, but the South is especially like that. And, you know, I I think whenever there's like frustration or um, with the political state of the country, there's so much derision towards the South. Um, First off, tell folks where you're from and what you love about where you're from. But I think my big question is also um, what draws you to write uh, so generously and complexly about where you're from.
1: So I am sort of a sort of my bit to talk about where I'm from. I'm from a place called Possum Neck, which is a small community about an hour and a small, very rural community about an hour and a half from Jackson, which is the state capital. Uh, it's we used to have drink cozies in our town that said we're east of a town called West and west of a town called Where. <laughs> so I <love> uh, that. <laughs> um and it's right, it's sort of a very sort of unincorporated rural community right by the Big Black River, which is a tributary of the Mississippi River. Um and it's just still, even even now, it's very undeveloped land, very much like I, I lived out in the country, very wooded area. Um, I, I grew up on the same road as all of my cousins and my mom's brothers and sisters all lived on the same road. Um, very, um, A lot of people would probably find it very isolating because um, I'm sort of surrounded by fields and trees um, but I think like, you know, and I grew up, I grew up very much an oddball uh, because I I was not like any of my uh, male cousins at all. Like I didn't play football. I barely played basketball. Um, uh, I mainly warmed the bench uh, when I played <laughs> basketball. <laughs> I'm very uncoordinated and I read a lot. Um, and I was just a, I was just an oddball and like, you know, being closeted and queer in that space. It was, it was definitely, um, an outsider kind of vibe that I had, but I also had, I also grew up with a deep kind of affection for the place that I grew up in because I loved sort of having my own space and being sort of. I like the feeling of being kind of in the middle of nowhere, and I like the feeling of being sort of surrounded by trees and um I sort of have my own little nest of books that I can just sort of like read and uh write and so it was it was it was in some ways lonely growing up the way I did, but it was i I didn't mind the loneliness that much, and I was very much drawn to the place and and I mean I didn't grow up very wealthy either like my my parents didn't have that much money um uh, i grew up in a uh it sounds it sounds almost like a cliche and i don't mean it to but i grew up in a double wide trailer you know and and that's where my parents still live but like it was it was a great high dollar double wide trailer i mean we had an <laughs> we had a refrigerator that made crushed ice a satellite dish with over 200 channels and central heating and air i mean what more does a burgeoning homosexual need <laughs> um uh and so it was it was it was great they did the best they could with the limited resources that they had um my when i was a senior in high school My dad got laid off, and um, we had to use my college funds to like help, like that they had been putting away to like help pay like the mortgage and stuff. And so I went for two years at a community college, which was actually great because I got my first two years paid for. And it was, it was a, it was a little community college in Holmes County, which is like 20 minutes from where I grew up, and. And it was great. And then I went on to a four-year college. And then, you know, I'm here today. But, uh, but yeah, so it it was – it's an interesting sort of childhood that I had that I'm still kind of reckoning with. I do mainly fiction, but in my non, when I write nonfiction, I've been glancing at and sort of moving closer to sort of what it was like growing up, who I was, where I was. Because there was definitely – A lot of tension um, between me and my parents at first um, because I'm sure that they were expecting when they were having a son, and I'm an only child too. Right. um, right. That when they were having a son, they thought they were going to have someone like my dad, like my dad's mini B, someone who likes to work on small engines and likes to hunt and likes to play sports. And then here I come, I like to you know, I like to watch the Academy Awards, and I like to read Ann Tyler, and um, I like to listen to Tina Turner and Madonna, and, um, you know, I'm sure it was, it was a very, like, uh, very, very strange for them to, like, have given birth to someone like me, you know, and it took us a while to figure out how to speak each other's language, and it took us, and we still sort of are in the still have to like figure it out, you know. Process of coming out to them was difficult, but it wasn't as hard as I imagined it was going to be. And we're sort of like come out the other side of that and and now like it's amazing to me how far they have come in just a short amount of time with me being gay and not only sort of being okay with that, but like, you know, making a point to talk to me about my partner Josh. You know, sending text messages asking about Josh when I didn't. I didn't go home for the pandemic um, uh, this year for Christmas, and so my mom sent me a box of like gifts. They do like this twelve days of Christmas thing. That my and my mom sent me and Josh each twelve little gifts to like open Aww. up. During Not the that. twelve days of Christmas, and then you know my mom, even though they haven't met just because of logistics yet, um, my mom is always asking about Josh, and she was just recently. They do this outdoor flea market in the town of Canton in Mississippi, where they they sell like kind of like uh, hand me down clothes, you know, like uh, like uh, I used to get all my Ralph Lauren polo shirts from like Goodwill or yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or like from. Uh, like people who ha- much richer people whose like children had outgrown them and so she was like going through these uh these polo shirts and sending me pictures of them and Josh my partner I'm an extra large and Josh is a small and she was sending me pictures of like small polo shirts and extra large shirts asking if Josh or I would like them and so that was like a that was like a big thing and so yeah it's been it hasn't been easy but i think that You know, I when I came out to them, I and I think this is different for every queer person who who makes this decision. But I was like, I'm going to make a point to just give them grace and have difficult conversations with them and not go away from that and just like face it and answer their questions and hold them accountable and be really honest with them when they say things that hurt me and try to move forward from that. And it wasn't easy and it required a lot of like, you know, I've been in counseling for a long time and it required a lot of like mental and psychic energy. But I think like, it, it for me, in my particular situation, it's, it's paid off and things are so much easier now than
0: it, than I ever thought it could be. So much of what I like about your work, because I, 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 I both hear and enjoy a great deal what you're saying about um, being a different son than your um, your your parents wanted, and do you think this has an impact on? I mean, I'm sure it has an impact on your writing. But what I'm getting at is so much of what I like about your writing is the ways that you thoughtfully complicate masculinity mm-hmm. um, and perceptions of masculinity that I think go a long way towards, in in not just Southern masculinity, but like broad, or like the idea of Southern masculinity, but like broadly deconstructing um, masculine ideals as they are projected onto uh, young men. Mm -hmm. And it's made me think a lot, uh, reading your work has often, it's made me think a lot about um, how so many things are just assumed, you know, you know, for, and, I, and I know that masculinity varies by, you know, I'm like I, I grew up the young black boy in, in Columbus, which is different than the masculinity you were born into. But I, I do think there are some expectations that are thrust upon uh, young folks, uh, across, I mean, in general, right, gender expectations. And I think your work does a good job of, of complicating that. Um, and I'm wondering how much of your life and history ties into the urge to complicate
1: that. I think it's just, it's baked in. I think I've always felt, um, I've always felt like I've not ever met those masculine expectations that have been put on me. And, and, and it's not for, and I'll tell you that it's not for lack of trying, right? Like I, for a long time, you know, growing up, I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, to um, stick out. You know, I wanted to sort of be like the other boys. And it took me a long time to just sort of um, I was way out of high school. You know, um, it took me a long time to just sort of be okay with who I was. And I mean, I would it's just it was just so much of the stuff that I liked uh, was such sort of um, uh, are sort of like queer markers, you know, that that are just sort of right now, like in this day and age, are kind of... Uh cliche for a gay man to like right you know like i i really loved growing up the golden girls right i oh, loved yeah. i you know and that's such a that's such like a, a gay kind of um uh marker right now like i feel like as soon as you come out as a gay man you get the card in the mail well here are the episodes of golden girls you need to watch and um <laughs> uh, and as so uh and i remember vividly this is like this is this is um I remember this and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I am really different from all the boys I'm growing up around when, um, because I was a fan of Golden Girls, I was a huge fan of Bea Arthur. Uh, I remember my two closest friends in junior high, their church that they went to was, um, sending everyone and visitors like you had to pay something I think to go to do this like paintball excursion where you went to like this this these woods and you like divided up into teams and shot paintball guns at each other and that sounded like hell to me but also that was the weekend uh it was either Nick at Night or TV Land was airing the complete seasons of Maud with B Arthur and so and so I pretended I was sick and didn't go to the paintball excursion so I could watch <laughs> all these seasons of Maud with B. Arthur and uh, that great Norman Lear sitcom. It's a spin-off of All in the family for anyone um, who's listening <laughs> uh, And it was wonder I, I was just but I remember thinking like having such a good time watching it and like thinking you know what I am I am an odd bird. I am really I am really. Uh, Different. Um, uh, and and I think that the process for me of um, of coming out and and sort of reckoning with my history and my past has one of the great things about coming out for me is the giving myself the permission, to just be myself and to just like what I like, I think that is the greatest gift someone can give themselves is to just be okay and with liking what they like, you know not to like abscond from like thinking critically about it, you know, but like being okay with liking what you like and not being sort of like ashamed of it you know the whole term of like guilty pleasure I feel like if it's giving you pleasure you shouldn't you shouldn't, shouldn't feel, guilty. feel guilty about it no. you know I would
0: okay, so we're in a I almost must talk to you about the Golden Girls now. Yes, I was, have to. This was like on my list of things, but now I feel like we've organically just arrived here. Um, so I, I am a Golden Girls fan, um, and I don't even know where to start because I think there's a generic question, which is not actually who is your favorite Golden Girl, but who is the one you most identify with. Which for me, those are different answers.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I think. So there is a way in which the Golden Girls, there's a way in which the Dorothy character, I don't think I'm as acerbic as the Dorothy character. I don't think I'm as dry. I wish I could have the snappy comebacks. But there is a way in which, you know, that show really like looking back and looking at some of the episodes. I mean, Bea Arthur is a very handsome woman and they are like always beating up on her looks. But she but she sort of always has like a great comeback when Blanche or Rose or even her mom sort of hammers her for how she looks. And um, I always really appreciated that because, you know, like I I sort of have felt that before. But I think that there there are personality traits to each golden girl that I have. Like Dorothy is more intellectual, and I, I definitely feel that. Ro- I can I can definitely the way Rose talks about Saint Olaf, I can definitely sort of fall into the trap of talking about my cousins in Possum Neck, you know, and can sort of like wind stories as wild and as outlandish as hers, by virtue of being Southern and Taurus, uh, i.e. lusty. I can I can <laughs> definitely have my uh, my Blanche moments, and um, when I'm gossiping, I can
0: definitely. Uh, be as
1: nasty as Sophia. (laughs) yeah
0: yeah i think one one i will say b arthur uh has throughout her life but particularly i think in the 70s and 80s incredible eyebrows yes um all the way through like really ahead of her time in terms of (laughs) eyebrows um especially in mod i if you look i look at old press photos from mod and it's like gosh she was doing her was that just natural but I think, so yeah, I mean, I think that I wish, I aspire to Dorothy. Yeah, me too, But I'm yeah. probably most like Sophia.
1: Oh, nice, nice,
0: yeah. But I, I do think that Dorothy is the, like, Dorothy is who I imagine myself to be. I mean, it's like anything else, right? Like, who we are in our head, in the way our voice sounds in our head, all these things are, like, actually not what the world gets. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in my head, I'm Dorothy. But yeah. I know, I know that in real life, I'm not.
1: Oh my God! In my head, I'm Dorothy, but I probably, all things considered, I'm probably more of a
0: rose. <laughs> 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 um, do you? Yeah, go do ahead. You, do you have a favorite season of Golden Girls? I really like the early
1: seasons. Me too. I, I really yeah. do. Like, I I have like a couple favorite episodes. My probably one of my favorite, uh, two of my favorite episodes of the Golden Girls that I just love, and I think this speaks to like the sort of earnestness in me, but I love the episode when Blanche is going back to school and she gets sexually harassed by her yeah. professor in the psychology, uh, she's taking a psychology class, I think, and um, and the girls help her figure out how to deal with that and she has, and she decides to like, buckle down and study and, um, like that great moment at the end of uh, of that episode when she tells off the professor and she's like, "You've made me so mad, I've decided to pass your course yeah, and yeah, yeah. and you can kiss my a." Like, I really, I just really like the sassiness of that and like the the sort of like grit and resolve of that episode and sort of like the earnestness of it too. Like, here's a here's you know, she had a legitimate problem and like this made family was there for her and they like talked it through and figured out what the best way to handle it was and it even shows sort of like it even hints at the kind of structural problems that a institution of higher education can have in dealing with sexual harassment you know she goes to the dean or the or I can't remember or or some sort of administrator right and and it's pretty much impossible for her to get sort of any kind of help with this i think this was this was this i i'm so bad on my history but i want to say was t- title nine was still was, was yeah it was, yeah, yeah, it yeah, was that, yeah that
0: episode was in like the 85 86. i remember this episode weirdly i remember of course i remember the main plot but i feel like there's also like a frank sinatra subplot in this episode there where, is yes <laughs> yeah where it's like they're trying to get tickets to the to the show and it's sold out yes um gosh I feel like between the two of us our institutional golden girls episode memory. <laughs> that, uh, we should we should like go on tour with this or something. Yes, 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 it would be great. So
1: so my experience watching golden girls was always after school. I would come home after school and I would watch again another marker. Uh, I would watch Lifetime and they would have they would have this is the sitcom lineup they would have. It was like perfect for a young gay boy. Like 2 hours of designing women. Two hours of Golden Girls, uh, no, not two hours. I'm sorry, one at two episodes of Golden Girls, two episodes of Designing Women, and then two episodes of Ellen. And that was the <laughs> that was like the the sort of like thing. And I remember, I remember vividly because I did not see Ellen's puppy episode when she came out when it was originally airing, right? Um, but I saw it in reruns. Like this must have been late '90s, early 2000s, and I remember when the episode came on lifetime this shows how much things have changed like lifetime put a disclaimer before the episode before they aired it and i remember saying oh i guess this is the episode when she comes out and like all of the episodes when she's living as a gay woman and out it would always have this disclaimer in front of it
0: i remember that yeah you know it's interesting the arrow sitcoms that we both grew up in you know, I mean, I, I remember watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, yeah. And this thing kind of happened with the Fresh Prince. I mean, I think this was good in a lot of ways, but where it got, in the later seasons, the episodes got a little more serious. And they began to, to, to uh, still funny, still a funny show. But They began to kind of orbit around more, quote-unquote, heavy social issues. And I'll never forget the episode where Will gets shot. It was like, I think, a two-parter. Uh, you know uh, weeks back to back and I I remember that that saying there was a disclaimer before it now that seems so odd yeah um and then you know the message after it, where it's like you know if you know anyone who has a gun here's what to do that kind of thing um that that's that's really fascinating to me and I you know so much of us we don't watch tv like that anymore like I can't think of the last time I watched a show from week to week there's a show um There's, there's, aren't there? Aren't many shows that I like now that are just like airing in real time. I really love the show Good Girls, but I just wait until it's. I wait until the season's over and then, like, binge it on whatever. That's with Uh, Christina
1: Hendricks, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been meaning to watch that. That looks like something that would be like it's great. Okay, it is
0: great, and she is wonderful in it. Um, But you know, I kind of just. I think there's a way that the on-demand nature of our existence has broken. Um, my ability around patience when it comes mm-hmm. to television, at least when it comes to almost every other realm, I think I'm still as patient as I ever was but when it comes to television. It's like, I can't believe that I lived a life watching a show week to week.
1: I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to think about it and to think about cliffhangers. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and um, yeah, yeah. I re I, I, sort of feel that, especially because my mom really loved the nighttime soap opera. Um, oh, yeah. she was a big fan. so my family was really into not necessarily dynasty, but Dallas was really huge in, in my family. and I wasn't born yet, but I were the the sort of who shot j.r. Cliffhanger was like really big in my family. Um, uh, they they really they re- and, you know, you had to wait. Not a whole week to find that
0: out, but I think you had to, had to wait.
1: I, you had to wait was, like to the next season. Next season.
0: Yeah. I mean the the Who Shot Jr. is such a that was also a big one that I remember. And recently, um, you know, I watched I watched season two of the West Wing and it ends, of course, with uh Bartlett, the president, you know, announcing whether or not he's gonna run again. Mm. And I remember thinking like there are people I didn't watch The West Wing in real time when it was on. I was like there are people who waited a whole season right off season to find the answer to this i don't I can't believe that that was just like a thing that <laughs> that we endured. yeah,
1: yeah i feel like I feel like there's something about like like I feel like the, our 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 patience has like grown thin- like we're used to binging right in a, in a in a way that like our patience has has sort of grown thin for for things like that which is a shame cuz i sort of i sort of like the um i i sort of felt a little bit of this comeback when um earlier this spring when WandaVision was happening
0: oh yeah yeah and
1: and all the theories that sprouted up about that television show and, and it it did feel and that show was all about like you know revisiting the tropes of sitcoms right and 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 there was a nice kind of callback to like just collectively everyone was wondering what was going to happen week from week and I really liked that I really liked it sort of brought back at least through social the spheres of social media the kind of water cooler speculation about things that I really enjoyed
0: I was going to ask you about about Patience and what it does for the imagination as a writer, you know, because I do think that there, as much as I lament or as much as I talk about how how much my brain is wired towards binging, there was something I loved about the Wandavision phenomenon because I got to because there was time to watch these theories unfold and there was time to watch an imagination run wild, even if it was just like briefly, um, and it reminded me so much of what I love about. The writing, or the work, or spending time immersed in other people's work—to to to love a book for me is sometimes to put it down and let my mind wander and return to it and see if my wandering has any merit. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how patience serves your imagination as a thinker, a writer, a consumer of language.
1: Yeah, I when you were talking about that, like this idea of like putting a book down and having to like think about it some, I was thinking about when. The summer between when I was in 11th grade, um, going into being a senior, I worked as like a groundskeeper for this uh, this galvanizing plant. They would take like the the metal um bridges and like galvanize it, you know, so it could be like. Better prepared for the weather and stuff, and I would like cut the grass at this plant and keep the and it was so large that by the time I finished cutting the grass, I would have to go back and start all over again um, <laughs> and it was the only time in my life I had a job where I had to wear a hard hat and it's not a good look for me and um but during that summer was the summer that um uh Oprah, I used to always follow Oprah's like book of the month or book book club things um, in high school, and uh, it was the summer I think that she picked *Sula* by Toni Morrison as the as the book of the month, and so I was reading that, and that book just sort of like just completely, and I had never read anything by Toni Morrison before, it just completely bowled me over with like the language. And I could only, like I was so fascinated by that book, it just completely drawn me in. But I, I would, every night I would could only read like three or four pages, cause it was like eating a, a, a really uh, rich slice of pound cake. Right? And And I could only like digest like three or four pages at a time and then all throughout the day when I was like cutting grass the next day, Um, weed eating and stuff, I would be thinking about that book and thinking about Sula and Nell and those characters in that book and um, just living with them and living with the book for the first time in my life. It was like the first reading experience I had where I was just sort of living with a book and these characters became so, so real for me in, in a way like towards no spoilers but like towards the end when that that like death scene with Sula was like one of the yeah. like like just like the the it just it was like I wasn't even reading anymore It was like I was just sort of like experiencing something on like a, a different level because I had spent so much time with these characters and i I remember thinking to myself like oh my god, this is like what it means to like write something really great. this is what it means to like write something that, like, can, can, like, move someone, you know, or just bring someone completely into the experience, and I've had that with other books, too, and so I think that that's, like, a pretty high bar for me as a writer, but, like, I try to, I think for me, plot is definitely important, but I think, like, character is bound up into plot for me, and, like, making characters that not only I care about, but that I can get the
0: reader to buy into caring about as well. I appreciate you saying no spoilers on Sula. I will say that like when it comes to TV shows and when it comes to perhaps other media, I think statute of limitations exists when spoilers. Okay, good. But with with books, I actually don't think that's the case. Uh, Well, maybe, I don't know. There was, you know, I was talking about the show The Wire recently and I said something uh, and someone was like, no spoilers. I was like, you know, the show is like at this point, like two and a half decades old or whatever, you know, (laughs) maybe figure it out. But I I, I go back and forth with books, although I also will say this is we're we're running up against time and I don't want to hold you. So I will. This will probably be the last line of inquiry I go down. How are you generally when it comes to spoilers? Because as I've gotten older, I've realized that I just don't care that much maybe.
1: I don't either. Like I I think I care more about like people who care about them, you know, like yeah, if they yeah. if they like but like wh- this goes back to Toni Morrison, was it The Bluest Eye where in the Bluest Eye where um well all of Toni Morrison's books, I feel like the plot is sort of given at the beginning and we don't it's not the it's not what happens that that Mm -hmm. keeps me there it's how it happens happens. and and there's like there's a line in the bluest eye and i'm gonna like misquote it but it's like we we know we know what happened now we have to content ourselves with how or something i'm I'm badly misquoting that line in the bluest eye but 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 i think for me that's the joy of of reading and being in the hands of a really good writer like a tony morrison or an alice mcdermott or Hanif, uh, uh, like there's a there's there's a great thing where it's it's like not not what happens that keeps me there. It's like what it's like how language is rendered and how the experience is it's sort of given to me.
0: Some of this, I wonder if this goes back to. I mean, for me, I think about often this has to go back to my just investment in the soap opera as a form. Oh because yeah. Because I think so much of the soap opera is not about like we know sometimes what happens at the very beginning mm-hmm. and the whole vehicle of the storytelling is about how it happens and that's it. So are you a fan of daytime soap operas? I I am. Yeah. And I, and, but I will say that I have, as I've aged and some of this is because I just don't have the time to watch daytime TV as much anymore. Uh, and, and for me, the thing about daytime TV is like watching it in the daytime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really love a nighttime soap opera. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Revenge.
1: Oh, I I saw bits and pieces of it. I know Revenge, yeah. That was like around the time of Desperate Housewives, which I watched, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Revenge is like a ridiculous nighttime soap opera, and I love it because of that. But I do love the daytime soap opera opera too because of the, the same storytelling vehicle exists where it's like, okay, I know what happened, now just tell me in the most fascinating way how it happened. Yeah. Yeah, I remember vividly my
1: babysitter, we would watch Days of Our Lives until, I don't know if you remember the storyline, Marlena got possessed by the devil. And my babysitter was super religious and she thought that the devil was gonna jump through the TV and get into us, and so we stopped and started watching As the World Turned and The Bold and the Beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> which had which had like much hotter men on it, so I was okay. but yeah. uh, <laughs> and the young and the restless, that was another one, yeah. but uh, but yeah, yeah, there's something there's something really interesting about serialized television like that where the story has to keep going. And it's like you said, like you can see sort of where things are going from a mile away most of the time. Like you know as soon as one character cheats on another character, that information is going to come out somehow. But it's always like, how is it gonna come out? What outlandish plot device <laughs> are they gonna use to like get this to come out? Yeah,
0: yeah. And you're right. Yeah, I think that what you said was great because you're right. The story is almost required to keep going. Yeah. You know, it's like the story has to keep going, and so it's just a, a matter of like how deep in the bag of tricks can one go to figure out something that'll bridge that continuity. A good, a good writing tool for for aspiring writers out there, perhaps.
1: Yeah, well, it reminded me, too, of, like, the frenzy, and it's, like, I know, he, like, he's problematic, and, and like, I, I like the R. Kelly in the closet sort of phenomenon that happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. remember that, how, like, it just kept going? It, I, like, I stopped listening at a certain point, but, like, it went to, like, really outlandish places.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I feel like I was, you know, like many people, I divested from R. Kelly probably, like, in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, but I was very aware that it was still churning, which just seemed, you know, I would love if uh, a musician I actually listened to would kind of take up the mantle of making a a, a musical soap opera that just kind of continually evolved for many, many years. Oh yeah, that would
1: be great. Yeah, that would be amazing.
0: (laughs) Nick, this has been a pleasure. I feel like I have to, they're gonna, they're gonna cut us off probably because we've been going for so long, but it's because- Genuinely, we
1: didn't, we didn't even get to talk about the Tina Turner documentary, which is something I
0: desperately on, wanted. Actually, to... Let's talk about it. Let's okay. talk about it. And 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 they'll sorry to the producers. Uh, hopefully, you'll be fine because <laughs> I was interested in your thoughts on the Tina Turner documentary. It was on my list. I um, I wept. I wept. Uh, I thought
1: it was. I thought it was really. I thought it was really beautiful. I loved it. I thought like. Um, but I'm like such a Tina Turner fan. Like I think. It, yeah. What I really liked about it is that it sort of it talked about the abuse but it they they talked about like how it didn't it wasn't all about the abuse it talked about like her ways of like trying to struggle and transcend that you know and how it kept like being brought up to her and she kept being like re-traumatized by that you know in the 80s yeah. and i thought that was like a really interesting take on it but it also gave a lot of space to her as a performer re-engineering her comeback in the 80s, which is something that, um, it, like, if you've ever read her memoir, Itina, it touches on a little. And, and the movie, What's I've Got to Do With It touches on it a little, but I felt like it really gave that sort of time in her life when she goes to London and records Private Dancer, it really gave that a lot more time, which is something I'm very interested in, which is the, the, um, the, the sort of, like, that, that sort of moment in her career um and it pushed me it it sort of like made me go back and on youtube um you can go and watch the full video uh concert of her live at rio which is just just such an amazing concert video like she's just like at the pinnacle and it's it's just like yeah yeah it's just great
0: i loved i i also think you know so much of my desire for so long and a big ache that I've been carrying is that Tina Turner's legacy is not only defined by abuse. And I was very grateful for this documentary and how it, I think addressed it, but perhaps did it in it returned some humanity to her narrative and her legacy. Um, because so much of my fear, I think particularly with black women is that they're only lens through tragedy. Right. Um, And for so long, I've been like, gosh, you know, Tina Turner has had a titanic and influential career. I mean, more than, yes, Tina Turner has made stunning albums and um, built uh, stunning things around those albums. But also, you know, her influence is so deep. So, you know, I like look around. And I go, okay, that artist maybe would not exist in the same way without Tina Turner. That artist would not exist in the same because I think that there's a direct line between, say, a Tina Turner and a Janet Jackson. Yeah. And and then we start talking about like a tree of influence, and that tree is very large. Um, and you know, well, and you, th- I, when I think
1: about Tina Turner, I think about the '80s, like her absolutely. look in the '80s, like just defined the '80s. She had, like, I feel like her, the way, like. So as a gay man, I'm very much interested in this, but like the way her hair is just so big, you know, Huge. that that great yeah. like lion's mane. Oh my god, it is just amazing. And that sort of I feel like big hair bands copied that. Like oh, that of sort course. of predated Absolutely. big hair bands, like and I feel I feel like that she's the one who sort of originated that. And that whole look to me is like music in the 1980s. That's what she she did and and just like that whole her whole sort of like presence on stage, I've never seen her live, which is a great regret of my life, but I, um, but like watching her live concerts, like just the way she is able to come on stage and have this kind of magical uh, connection with the audience, right? It's like, it's like very, it's just, she is the music and the music is her. And it's, 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 yeah, she's my favorite performer ever like she's just it for me
0: it's heartbreaking that i mean i also have never seen her live and there's some heartbreak in that because i I think you know we're we're not gonna have the chance to no i I don't think yeah yeah it's, it's it's over for her in terms of being on stage which you know i mean that's not uh deriding her at all she's earned you know she's totally earned earned. and that beautiful
1: house they showed in the documentary she has earned that little piece of heaven honey like yes live in that live in that i do want i do want a wall mural like she has of like the private dancer album cover did you see (laughs) that yeah that's what i I want want yeah
0: (laughs) um but she's she's earned her rest and i you know uh i'm sad she's an artist i mourn i'm going to mourn not ever seeing um, but you know she's earned she's earned the rest that she has gotten Nick White this has been an absolute pleasure I' love talking to you so much Same. let's do it let's do it in person now one day where since it's a little warmer we yes. can go under the
1: streets. Yes that sounds great.
0: At the end of every episode, I take some time to share one of my small joys, and I am back to record shopping, like fully back to record shopping. I do this thing where I kind of purge my record collection every few years and then start over in an attempt to build space and to make sure I'm not over purchasing or overindulging. I own too many books and too many sneakers and too many old vintage torn T-shirts and things like that. And so I only have space for so many things, and records, I love them. You know, left to my own devices, I would have – walls and walls of records but then i began to ask myself well what am i actually listening to frequently or what records do i need in my collection and so the purge and rebuild is how i kind of keep myself accountable in that way and i am back in the rebuild form now and i am back at spoonful shout out to brett uh and amy and everyone at spoonful and i find myself kind of loving The very tactile nature of holding a record and remembering what I've loved about it and making that very hard decision, which gets harder as I continue to shrink and shrink the collection of do I really need this? How often am I going to spin this? These kind of negotiations actually bring me a lot of pleasure because it brings me back to the root of what I love about music listening, which is can I find an album with no skips? Uh, which is, I think, vital when it comes to the record listening form, when it comes to the literal needle on a record form. And so I'm back to record shopping. I was in Spoonful last week. I, I love thumbing through the stacks, even though the stacks don't always change all that much. It means so much to me to, to kind of have a record store in Columbus where people know your name. I don't really, you know, I don't drink, so I don't go to bars often. And so the record store is kind of my bar, my place I go where people know my name. And uh, it has been a real pleasure to reacquaint myself with uh, the record-shopping impulses that I often have. Small Joys is a production of WOSU Public Media. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis, sound engineering by Eric French. Nick Hauser is the Chief Content Director of Digital Media. Special thanks to Leticia Wiggins for editorial support, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more Small Joys. Small Joys.